check out episode 18, that's season 2-18, as we get into our Woman in Supply Chain series, part 8. I interview the CEO and president of Araya Logistics, and we talk about her journey to success, as well as how they are partnering with Beta. You're not going to want to miss that episode, so remember to check it out at season 2, episode 18. Welcome to Let's Talk Supply Chain. My name is Sarah Barnes-Humphrey, and each week I bring you the top supply chain professionals in the industry. You will learn about best practices, new innovation, and most up-to-date information about supply chain. I believe that collaboration is the future of business, and I have designed this show to ensure you have all the information you need to succeed in business and in your supply chain. This episode was produced in collaboration with Border Buddy, the most innovative online customs platform out there. And here is what Graham, the founder, has to say. How long does it take you to get a duty rate or guidance on the right HS classification from your current customs broker? With Border Buddy's new revolutionary self-service technology, you will never go traditional again. We have created a platform that allows you to get instant quotes on duties, taxes, and customs fees to import your products into North America. To get 10% off your first clearance, sign up at borderbuddy.com forward slash Let's Talk Supply Chain. Hello and welcome back to Let's Talk Supply Chain. I just want to say thank you for tuning in and listening each and every week. Our listener base is growing every single week and I appreciate each and every one of you. It allows me to talk about my love of supply chain with some pretty incredible people. So let's get to this week's review. How many times have I asked myself, why is this a man's world? And this is not a feminist thought. It just seems to me that the corporate business is upside down. I do challenge people to showcase why men have the unacceptable leading positions rate of 63% in large and multinational companies. Clearly, this is a mere reflection of the society itself. But isn't it time to make progress? Considering men and women have the same cognitive capability, and women are so ahead in humanity skills, I do hope this scenario change in the short term so we can have a fairer society. Gives me goosebumps to see women in power, and congratulations to you, Sarah, and Let's Talk Supply Chain. Thank you so much, and I, I hope that I am saying this correctly. Yao Muniz from Brazil. That was his review that he sent over. Thank you so much for listening, sending in your, your review. And remember, guys, if you want to get featured on the show, send us a review or subscribe to us on iTunes, send me a review through iTunes, or you can email me at listener at letstalksupplychain.com. I love to hear from you guys, want to make sure that I'm covering topics that you want to hear about and talking to the people that you want to hear from. So remember to email me, get involved, and um, 
I am always listening. So today we are talking all about the digital transformation in procurement with John Hansen. And I think you're going to love this episode for a few reasons. One, John is a radio and TV host in supply chain, which should make for a really, really fun conversation today. And number two, we are talking about cultural differences to create success, which we have never done before. But first, here's a little bit more insight into who John is. John, as the editor and lead writer for the Procurement Insights blog, John Hansen has written nearly 3,000 articles and papers, as well as five books on subjects as diverse as supply chain practice, public sector policy, emerging business trends, and social media. In addition to being a much sought after speaker and moderator internationally, John is also the host of the highly acclaimed PI Window on the World show on Blog Talk Radio, which has aired more than 800 episodes since its initial broadcast in March 2009. A two-time Ottawa finalist for the Ernst & Young Entrepreneur of the Year Award out of a group of 15 thousand blog talk radio named John Hansen as one of their top 300 hosts. So welcome to the show, John. I'm so excited to have you on the show today. Well, I'm telling you, I'm excited to be here as well because, well, there's two reasons why. Number one, I love your show. I've started listening to it uh, only recently, and I find that you bring a lot of great enthusiasm to important topics. And as we mentioned before, you know, insight, providing uh, knowledge in a particular area can also be entertaining. So you are definitely entertaining. So that's a good thing. Um, the second part that I think is important, and, uh, you know, in the green room, we talked about an interview I did with Microsoft's new president, Kevin Peasker, where he said, digital transformation will not happen without more women in the STEM fields. And I think that really that's a powerful statement because, you know, you're bringing uh, an important uh, service, an important uh, perspective to, to, to a market that requires it. We need more women in the field. And, and I am just so excited to be, to be able to be part of uh, this show and, and help to promote your show. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate that, you know, your sentiments just now, and I appreciate all of your support. So thank you so much for being such a great fan of the show. So let's dive into what we're talking about today. So sure. we're going to start out talking about culture. So what defines culture? Well, you know, I think we all have traditional ideas as to what culture is all about. You know, we talk about corporate culture. We, we talk about, uh, of course, culture in, in, the, in, in the general sense. But when I wrote this paper that we're going to be talking about today, when I looked at culture, I looked at areas of, of influence or, or experiences that sort of make each area unique to a collective outcome. So the four cultures that I talk about with uh, digital transformation and making that happen are the culture of, of, of the home environment, and I'll get into that when we, we talk, uh, culture of, uh, from a generational perspective or standpoint. We all know the millennial mystique, but there's a little bit more to it than that. Culture from a gender perspective, and I may have alluded and touched on that <laughs> with my opening comment. And then, of course, there's senior management culture. So for me, the culture as it relates to digital transformation fall into those four areas. Awesome. And just so our listeners know, we will have that paper available to you in the show notes on the website. And that's going to be season two dash episode 19. So let's before we get into sort of the breakdown of those four cultural environments, let's talk about cultural transformation. What 
is that? Well, you know, it's kind of interesting. Is it cultural transformation or cultural alignment? Uh, you know, when I look at this and I think about cultural transformation, you look at it from a general standpoint. Well, we've got to bring in a new culture. I, I'm a basketball fan, for example, and, you know, Toronto Raptors, who just got swept by the Cleveland Cavaliers, much to my chagrin, the third, uh, second year in a row. Uh, Wait, hold on, hold on. What do you mean? Lebronto? Lebron. Yeah, there you go. Thank you. you know what? You know, that's salt in the wounds right there, especially since <laughs> Boston, the Celtics are up two games to nothing and putting, uh, putting the, the, the Cavaliers uh, against the wall there. But the Raptors last year, after being swept, said, we're going to go through a cultural change. We're going to change the way in which we play the game. We're going to change our offense, our plays, everything like that. And, of course, they won 59 games this year, which was great. But what was interesting is when they got to the playoffs, it was the same old result. So the cultural change in that regard may have adjusted things, but really it's the outcome of what those cultures and the impact that it has. So when I think about culture, I don't think about a change of culture. I think of an alignment with culture with accomplishing your own objective. Do you know where I'm coming from? Absolutely. I hear what you're saying there. And, you know, when you talk about those four environments, I don't think everybody realizes, but they each have an impact on your day and how you live your life. Well, and, and that's that's the whole point. That's why it, they largely go, you know, unnoticed. Like, you know, give you an idea. When you talk about home culture, everyone says, well, what is that all about? Well, in the procurement world, one of the biggest impacts of transformation came about because people asked a simple question. Has they used their computers at more at home, mobile devices more at home, and the convenience of, let's say, ordering online with Amazon? They said, why do we not have the same experience when we buy or, or acquire products or services at work that we do at home, at home? It's easy. It's at our fingertips. And meanwhile, we have those old ERP, those monolithic systems uh, that led ultimately, of course, we're in the postmodern ERP era, according to Gardner now. But I mean, why don't we have that same work experience? So the experience that we had at home and the home culture of understanding the use of computers and how we could apply it and the emergence of BYOD, bring your own device to work type of thing. I mean, that has had a major impact on the acceptance of what we call the on-demand or pay-by-the-drink models. You know, I was talking with the head of uh, Hewlett Packard Enterprises, and it was funny what he said to me is he said, uh, you know, and, and other people shared the same sentiments of executives. You know, in the old days, you know, we used to have the risk absorbed by uh, by the client. Now the client comes to us, we're absorbing the risk because they pay by the drink, they pay by what we're able to deliver. Now that's an important recognition by companies like HP, by NetApp and all those other high-tech organizations because we're looking at it now and saying, okay, what was the number one obstacle to that transformation of, of the home environment experience or culture to the work environment? And that was because how could we justify all the tens of millions of dollars we spent on putting together these overarching initiatives and somebody's coming along and saying to us a new vendor's coming along for service price come along and saying well for a fraction of the price and in months or weeks instead or in weeks or days instead of months and years you're going to get the same efficiency if not better i mean that was a stumbling block that had to be overcome so a lot of what happened is is that that transformation came about because people were comfortable using the technology in such a way in their homes had that not occurred i doubt we'd be at the stage of, of being able to do digital transformation. I love that you, you know, break it down and give sort of that visual on a realistic standpoint for our listeners. You know, sometimes with supply chain and procurement and things like that, we can go into different acronyms or, or give, you know, examples within the industry. But I think that you're, you're making it hit home for our listeners who are, you know, who can relate it back to their own life. So I love that. I love that. So 
Um, the four cultural, cultural environments, you, you mentioned them before. Let's break them down. What are they? What do they mean? Well, if you look at it again, just touched on the home cultural environment. And, and, and by the way, to, to just finish off on that point, which I think is important is, is that environment in the home transcended all corporate hierarchies. In other words, uh, from the, from the frontline workforce to the most senior of executives, everyone has used these systems at home. So the reality could be easily envisioned. Uh, and, and that opened and paved the way. The other culture is generational culture, which is kind of interesting. And, and you know, I wanted to look at this because uh, there's studies that have occurred over the world. For example, in India, the, uh, the average person under age of 35 has never used a desktop or notebook or laptop PC. They all use mobile devices. And so you look at the millennials, they don't have the fear or reservation of, of using technology and embracing technology. I mean, you know, I grew up in the era and I don't want to date myself too much. I'm 29. Uh, adding a few years. Uh, but, you know, there was the old days of fear, uncertainty, and doubt, FUD, and the IBM method of, or, or the saying, no one ever got fired for buying IBM. It, technology was intimidating and imposing to, to a lot of, of previous workforce generations. So with the millennial movement coming in, you say, okay, now we've got, for the first time ever, employed four different generations within the same organization. Some say five, but four, you know, from the baby boomers to the, to the millennials. And what's interesting is, is that that infusion of, of technological comfort, uh, I think, has also leads the way to opening up doors. But it's not a one-way door. You know, some people will say, well, it's the millennials bringing the technology, wearable technology. You know, the, the, the famous quote from Box founder about Uber saying, building for the way in which the world should work, not, not the way in which the world does work. Uh, you'd think that it's all driven by this one direction of millennial inflow. But here's what's really interesting. Uh, according to my studies and research, uh, the people who are more inclined to want to have personal interaction within the corporate environment are the millennials because they learn better in a classroom with other people there. The, 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 the baby boomers, ironically, on the other side, 40, 50, 60 and older, they're actually more comfortable using technology. In fact, many of them, because, uh, you know, there's no longer the cradle to grave employment that there once was, uh, are using the Internet, are using computers uh, far more. Uh, to look for jobs or pursue new career opportunities. So what I found within the research is, is that while there is a comfort level with millennials with the new technology, they have a burning desire to, to establish personal connections. Uh, on the other side, uh, the, the baby boomers and, and, and older generations aren't as intimidated by the technology as one might have originally thought. And so you now have these common building blocks that I think are so important within an enterprise. And as you know, uh, you know, when you have multiple generations for the first time within the same workforce, one of the biggest challenges, how do you get them to mesh together and collaborate? And I think this, this, this generational culture is a key factor if you understand it and if you know the culture within your enterprise and know from where people learn and interact best. So that's why I was excited about this part in the paper, because, again, it, it certainly it doesn't fly in the face of what people commonly thought. Millennials comfortable with technology, uh, you know, baby boomers, not so much. It was actually uh, in many ways uh, there was a comfort with technology but a desire to communicate in person and on the on, on the baby boomer side the technology is available and they and they're more comfortable with it than we would have thought so you've got to develop that 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 generational culture within your enterprise if you hope to forward a uh, digital transformation i've seen you know you it's funny that you talk about you know the the baby boomer boomers ex adapting to the technology and sort of millennials wanting that 
you know, personal connection. And I find that networking is a huge part of business these days. And it's, it's funny because the millennials seem to adapt more to that networking style. I mean, they know the technology and I guess maybe that's sort of to their credit, right? It sort of comes a lot easier to them. Um, but they adapt more to the, to the idea that you really need to network you know, either to move business forward or to get a new job or different things like that, where I find that the baby boomers, although they're adapting to the technology, they have a harder time adapting to the sort of networking mentality. Well, you, know, that's, you see, that's an interesting point. And that's where my research shows it, is, is, is the fact that the, the millennials who are technologically savvy and, and inherently more comfortable with it. I, I mean, you look at my kids, six, seven, uh, uh, 10 and, uh, 13. I mean, they do this stuff on the phones and mobile devices like breathing. Uh, but they, they tend to want to have more of a networking, a more of a personal interaction. And it, drilling down to my research a little bit more so, if you look at the baby boomers, uh, it's not that they don't communicate and network. I mean, their whole environment. Uh, was built on networking. Uh, the early days of associations was built on getting together and converging in a place and shaking hands and kissing babies, as I call it. I think where the, the, the generational uh, issue comes in for, for, for the boomers is that they don't want the degree of, and I'll use this word on a qualified basis, degree of intimacy in terms of the communication within the workplace. In the workplace, it was very much a degree of rigidity uh, that was confining the, the, the scope of conversation where when you look at networking uh, with, with the millennials, everything's on the table. Nothing's out of bounds, so to speak, if you know what I mean. So I think that's where it comes in. I think the, 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 the boomers have a desire to network. That's how they know. That's how they gain knowledge, uh, certainly. But the, the, the type of, of, of interaction and communication, I think, is something that they're having trouble adapting to. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah, that's a great point, especially with everybody sort of talking about authenticity and sort of putting everything out there. Um, that's definitely a struggle. Even I would say, you know, baby boomers and even sort of my generation as well, um, which is the top end of millennials, because even we're not really used to doing that. And we're, we're still trying to navigate that and figure that out. So the other two cultural environments that you talk about are gender and senior management. So give us sort of a, a look into those as well. Well, now, when we look at gender, and, and first of all, there's a very practical thing. You know, there's something like when I was a kid, my mother gave me cod liver oil, not because I liked it, but because it was good for me. It was the right thing to do. And any kind of, of really effective transformation has to come about more than just because it's the right thing to do, but because it's, it, it, and the smart thing to do, there's got to be a desire to change it. There has to be a compelling reason for it. You know, some will refer to Glacier's formula for change. But one thing that is driving the need for more women into the, the high-tech industry, into, into the STEM fields, is the fact that there is a job gap, especially in technology. Up here in Canada, they did a study, and they found that there are 216,000, I think it's grown to 236 now, but 216,000 open roles in technologies that cannot be filled by the present talent pool. Think about that. And that's going to continue to grow and widen. And think about then the fact that how many women are not in the high tech field that need to be in the high tech field that can offer value to it. So right now, it's a matter of like anything else uh, to to drive the industry forward. You need more women from a very practical level, because that's the population of where there is the least amount of representation. And I think it, it goes one in 10 uh, are, are, are women in terms of uh, uh 
uh, in the tech space. So, you know, there's a lot of growth opportunity with regard to that. And that's why Pisker said, you know, uh, you know, digital transformation will not happen without women. Now, Microsoft, as he reported for his team, his his executive team is 75% made up of women. And he said, but that's the exception to the rule. And in my paper, I talk about the fact that women in management occupations in computer uh, are roughly 26% in, in computer system information systems, where in human resources or social and community services, they occupy management positions 74 and 71% respectively. We've got to bring up the the, the the information technology to that level because we won't be able to fill the gap and bring in the talent. But there's something even more important on this. And, and you look at, at, at the, the, the different people who have commented on this, uh, like uh, one of the insights uh, that they found in the study, and I referred to this, is the fact that organizations who have more than one woman on the board uh, ultimately have a higher performance level when it comes to finances and, and, and economic and achieving financial objectives and a lower level of bankruptcy. And, 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 and Drucker reported on that. So he, what he said is, is with at least one female director, uh, there are 20% less likely to file bankruptcy. And he said that that number improved the more women you brought on. So we're not talking about we have to bring on women because it's the right thing to do. It's socially responsible. Uh, but there's practical reasons. We need the talent, number one. And I'm talking about the collective wheels. High tech isn't going to evolve, especially in North America and, and on, on a global stage. But you can't have transformation if you don't have the people on the team and, and in the leadership position. But there's also, again, statistics show that, that organizations do much better overall right across the board when there is a greater presence of females. And, and so, you know, there are very practical reasons why we have to be, have to facilitate this. Absolutely, I would agree. And and again, you know, it's about putting the right people in the right positions, um, but supporting you know the women um, to be able to get to those positions. You know, providing them with that support and maybe that mentorship, maybe that they need more over men um, to really push them to those you know the different opportunities that are out there. Well, you know, it's interesting. And, and, you know, that's a great discussion for another day, if you'll have me on your show again, because I've done research specifically into that realm of, of, of again, uh, you know, the, the, the dynamics within an organization itself that, that allow that to happen. You know, I mean, just to touch on it briefly, um, it starts with commitment. I made reference to a NIDA Borg Institute uh, paper that talked about the fact is is that you, you have to do something, and, and I alluded to this, that is more than just being the fair thing to do. But you have to create a culture that's more conducive to women being involved in there. Uh, and, and I think that's something that we have to get our minds about. Now, is that begin with with men changing their thinking does it change the dynamics within the interrelation between women within the the the, the, the uh, management hierarchy you know we've seen and heard things that uh talk about the queen bee syndrome we we talk about women being the, the, their worst enemies within an enterprise uh you know but you know that's something that should be delved into definitely and we, we certainly don't have the time to do it today but the reality is and and i'll say this again we're getting to the point of a crisis, and all of that means very little unless we take meaningful action, unless we do something. You know, it's almost like, uh, you know, the old analogy of you're on the Titanic, you strike the iceberg. You don't stop to yell at the iceberg, you man the, 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 the safety ships, right? You know what I mean by that? 
Yeah. And you know what? I think it might be interesting. Maybe I'll, I'll have you back on the show. And if, if you don't mind, maybe a part of our women, my women in supply chain series, because I've, I, I do interview a lot of, you know, powerhouse women and we talk about their journeys to success and things like that, but it might be nice to have you a part of that series and really, you know, talk about it from a male perspective and some of the research and the discussions that you've had um, to make it conducive for women to have those journeys to success. Anytime. Let me know when. Right. Right. <laughs> now, of course, we, we, will, we will put that in the calendar and make that happen. So um, I guess, you know, you talk a lot about digital transformation. Mm-hmm. So what does culture have to do with digital transformation? Well, I, if you look at the culture within the four, and, and these are the four cultures, and, and, and the fourth one we'll talk about now is senior management culture, and that answers directly to that point. I mean, all four areas are critical. But one of the interesting things, McKinsey wrote an article on research they did on companies that digitally reinvent themselves. They need to do that. And, and the article appeared in a December 2017 uh, Harvard Business Review article, and they talked about doing a survey involving 1,650 incumbent or industry-leading firms from around the world. And less than 20% of those organizations are on what they call a path of digital reinvention. In other words, uh, only 20% of the companies they surveyed had a digital strategy. And out of that, and this was an interesting thing, and even though the potential impact of digital reinvention on supply chain is, is documented very well. And this is something that McKinsey lamented saying, despite all of our efforts and those others in the industry who, who also do what we do, uh, warning companies that they had to digitally transform, digitally reinvent themselves, not only is, is that small amount of 20% uh, having a plan, but only 2% actually have supply chain strategies surrounding digital transformation. So this goes to the fact is, is where does that begin? And it starts with senior leadership. Senior leadership has to begin to look at, at digital transformation in a more proactive world. It's not something that's just going to come upon them. Or, or and I'll, I'll, I'll quote Pisker again. He said, uh, transform or be transformed. It, it, it's, it's like that silver or lead proposition. You know what? You've got to do it. Get ahead of it. And so the problem with most organizations uh, is that uh, they're not proactively embracing it. Yes, we're all talking about uh, artificial intelligence, robotic process automation. I just did a webinar yesterday on, on procurement and AI and talked about uh, narrow AI versus general AI and the differences between the two. I mean, there, there's a general sense that this is coming and it's happening, but everybody seems to be, the majority of organizations seem to be in this holding pattern of wait and see, or even more, I think, uh, deer in headlights, we're not so sure what to do with this now, because this is a period of time. That unlike any other, the, the, the functioning silos that historically divided IT from finance, finance from procurement, all of these silos now are melding. And we're entering a wonderful era of, of what you call a holistic approach to, to, to the enterprise. And, and supply chain and procurement have now been being seen and logistics being seen as an important strategic advantage if leveraged properly. But you can't do it from the silo of what you did from a functional standpoint before. You have to go across those lines. People in procurement have to understand finance and IT. IT has to move out uh, of the, the computer room and, and understand finance and understand procurement. So we're getting this blending now and, and job roles are changing and functions are changing. Uh, but within that, that has to be fostered and cultivated by senior management. And unless senior management gets on board, 
things are going to happen where the organizations who are moving ahead are going to have their pick of a lean talent pool. You know, we're going back to what I said before, before about the fact uh, that there are 260, now maybe 236,000 open jobs that can't be filled in the high tech world. What's going to happen is organizations are saying this, the pickings are becoming slim. Those who are progressive in their thinking, they're going to attract the best talent and the best and the brightest. And that is going to give them a decided competitive advantage. So that's what's really happening from that cultural standpoint is the senior management culture trickles down from the, from the enterprise side and embraces all of these other three cultures coming in, gender, generational, and home culture, to make it a reality. Yeah, and it's an interesting point that you make in the paper about how the alignment of culture can be used as a predictive tool. And I think you make a good point there about the blending of the jobs. You know, everybody getting to know the different aspects of the business. I mean, we've we've now touched on the fact that supply chain is at the boardroom level, which is amazing because companies are starting to see that supply chain needs to be um, aligned with so many other business functions to be able to... Um, you know, have a better business, move business forward. And I, I like what you talk about as a predictive tool because it's really going to keep the eye on the pulse and be able to do better business. And, you know, it's, it's, it, and that's sort of where the culture comes in as well. We've always been so siloed. And I'm finding that companies are, you know, especially the ones that are innovating and the ones that are going to be pushing into the future are looking at this a little bit differently. And that's the key. And that's where the cultural alignment comes in that we talked about in the very beginning. Look, one of the ways, and, 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 you know, we'll perhaps end with this thought, but I interviewed the new head of Lenovo. Um, and Lenovo, as you know, was a company that acquired the IBM's PC business, uh, relatively new head of Lenovo. And we talked to him, and uh, he said that he was an IBMer. When the company was acquired, uh, it was a cultural shift for, there's that word culture, for IBM to work in that environment. But he said, we've been going through digital transformation since that time. And the way we did it is we looked beyond the technology to the people. In other words, uh, technology may be the, 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 the tools of, of, of digital change. Uh, but the reality is it's the people. And there has to be that change from the people standpoint. And I, I thought that was a great way of putting it because you have to have the right people in the right place to, to achieve your, your, your transformation objectives. So here's a high-tech company uh, that's well-known, uh, and, and they're saying, hey, we're high-tech, but guess what? The ironing is, is we wouldn't have transformed as an organization if we didn't look at it from the people's standpoint. And I think that ties it all together. Digital transformation is not going to happen without having the, the, the right cultural alignment in these four key areas. So that kind of takes me, I'm going to ask you sort of what steps, you know, can companies take right now? But before we get to that, because you're leading into my last question, which is, you know, what are the top three tips to making sure the right people are in the right place? I think we should start with that first. Well, I think, and you know, and, and, and at the risk of sounding self-serving, this discussion paper I wrote is really uh, the, 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 the number one tip is in terms of this, your step is, is you've got to step back and understand which cultures have the greatest influence on your organization's digital transformation strategy. And based upon 15 years of research uh, and knowledge in this industry, these are the four areas of cultures that have to be understood best. You have to understand them before you can align them. So you have to look and say, okay, what is the home culture? 
what is the 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 and and that's why I created those contextual references to to how our buying experiences at home influence our willingness to move from those monolithic ERP systems to the on-demand pay-by-the-drink systems. You have to understand the four cultures and where you're strong and where you're weak. Once you have that understanding, you can then begin to work on their alignment. You can begin to put into strategies. For example, uh, with with the gender factor, assess. You know, do we have women in the positions of authority? Are we attracting enough women to the STEM fields or or the high tech fields in this instance? Are we attracting them where we can leverage their experience and expertise? And I think that's where you have to start looking when you start to understand it and start to align it. You have to look in those areas of what do we have to do to facilitate that? How do we get to the stage of being like a Microsoft with 75% of their uh, senior management team being women? And again, I want to caution this isn't an arbitrary number based upon being able to say, well, we've got to have this. You know, I mean, the, 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 the old days of uh, engaging small, medium enterprises, for example, I don't know if you remember that, but people say, well, we've got to feed small business. So a certain percentage had to be small business. I don't know where they derive that percentage from. Uh, but organizations obviously work to be able to do that under the understanding that it would benefit everyone. And yet there's been no real reports afterwards saying, here is how we've been able to stimulate the economy by, by uh, bringing on more small, medium enterprises into the process. In fact, my research shows, at least in Canada, I'm getting similar numbers in, in the United States in that regard. And I know I'm digressing for a moment, but there's a point here, is that uh, the majority of companies, small medium enterprises, still do not get involved, let's say, for example, pursuing government contracts because of the process being too costly and too time consuming. And so that's an example there where, again, you could set a target of, well, we want to get there. But if you don't have a firm understanding of why you're going to get there and what it's going to produce, then you're going through an exercise. You're chasing shadows. So when you look at the, the, the gender factor, look in the paper because this is designed to open up further discussion and say, you know, with more women, there's some practical outcomes that we're seeing historically spanning generations. That's why we have to do it. So we want we want to bring that in. We want to bring that in to bridge the talent gap, to offer new and innovative ideas and capitalize on this. Do, do you see where I'm going with that? Yeah. And so I was going to sort of ask, you know, how do you start that understanding? Is it about asking certain questions? Is it, can you outsource something like this? Is it taking a look at maybe the different strengths within of the individuals within your organizations? Because again, maybe they're not even in the right positions. Well, you see, it's a two-step process. Number one, you have to do it internally. One of the worst things you can do is, 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 is outsource it and say, okay, I'm abdicating my responsibility of understanding. You come in and tell me. I think you have to have a firm understanding uh, of, of your own organization from your best ability and then work with an external partner or consultant coming in to do an assessment of that based upon this, where you want to go to. So, you you know, the first question, and that's why this is called a discussion paper, and it's not like a 20-page document, as you know. Uh, it, it's like a nine-page document, including cover page, but it, it's designed to create the discussion. So within your organization, you have to set up and say, okay, how am I going to assess these these areas of cultural impact? You know, what is the skill sets? And you get feedback internally. You build a team uh, to, to, to do an analysis of each of these areas from different departments. Then you bring it outside because then you want that outside perspective, uh, a general industry perspective and, and expertise in this area. You bring them into the picture and they look at it and say, OK, this is the information you've garnered. This is the assessment. And you build a model based upon that for your own organization. Do you see what I'm saying? 
Yeah, it's really, really interesting. And I've, I've actually noticed, you know, with, with hiring, I'm sort of going in a different direction right now, but even with hiring, you know, there's sort of like two hour surveys and, and different things that companies are, you know, putting in place to find the right people. And I just, I don't know if that's sort of the right way to go. Well, you, I think what you have to do, and this is the key, is, is that you have to find a way to assess the lay of the land in your organization and then drill down and have a better understanding. You have to have that understanding originating within your own organization first before you can bring in an outsider. Do you, do you know that that's such a critical thing? Because far too often, uh, if you bring in an outsider without a firm understanding of your organizational goals and objectives from digital transformation, and this goes to, to the heart of what I talked about in that fourth area. I mean, if only 20 percent of the companies have a digital strategy, what's going on with those 80 percent of the company? Why don't they? And I think that's really the, the step you have to look at is why don't you have a digital strategy? especially given what everyone is saying. And then you go in and you say, okay, now, if we're going to build a digital strategy, we got to build it around these four areas. And and that's really the starting point. You got to know yourself first. Yeah, absolutely. I completely agree. So where can people find your show and your blog? I mean, I'm going to have obviously links to all of your social media, but I'd like the audience to be able to connect with and listen to your show and read your blog because you, you provide such amazing information in this space. Well, you know, the beauty about being around for as long as I have is that if you type in the search engine procurement insights, and that's I-N-S-I-G-H-T-S, we occupy, I occupy pretty much the first page. So all you have to do is type in procurement insights and you'll find us. Awesome. I love it. I love it. And again, for our listeners, we are going to make sure that that paper is available for you. It's a discussion paper. So I'm sure John is going to want to hear from you as to your thoughts or if you have any questions and things like that. So make sure that you connect with him. So there you have it. Um, make sure you focus on cultural transformation first before you do a deep dive into digital transformation to be successful. Remember to connect with John. I'm going to have all of his information. He is always sharing valuable you know, tips and information with the community, the supply chain community, and, and um, everybody that wants to listen to his show, read his blog. And it's just amazing all of the things that he's been able to do. And he interviews amazing people and quotes amazing people all the time. So you're going to love what he's put out for this community. I will have all of that information as well as the paper about this topic on letstalksupplychain.com forward slash season two dash episode 19. John, it's been amazing. I loved having you on the show and I can't wait for you to come back in our Women in Supply Chain series. Well, I love being here. So I'm looking forward to the next time we got a chance to share the virtual airwaves. Awesome. Thanks, John. If you liked this episode and need more insight into culture and competencies, check out Mark Polak of SIG in Season 1, Episode 27. And or if you want to learn more about, you know, millennials in supply chain and sort of those some of those cultural environments, I talked to Kelly Saunders, who is the CEO of Mirai Logistics in Women in Supply Chain Series Part 5. So make sure you go and check out those episodes if you want to hear more about what I was talking to John about today. Remember to rate and review the show on iTunes so others can find us and so I can feature you in an upcoming episode. 
or you can email it to me at listener at letstalksupplychain.com. I always want to hear from you. Love to hear from you guys. Want to make sure that I'm covering topics that are important to you and talking to guests that are important to you as well. If you want to learn more about the transportation platform I am working on, go and sign up at ships.com. That's S-H-I-P-Z.com and you will be one of the first to know when we are ready. Thank you so much for tuning into the show. It means the world to me to have you listening to the show, allowing me to do something that I am passionate about, love to do. I mean, I am passionate about supply chain and and love interviewing these amazing people. So have an amazing day and it's to our success. But remember, everybody, ship happens.